So we keep on keeping on. Hey, little humans, I'm Norma Jean. Welcome to Stay Wild, the podcast about how to keep your quirks in the wondrous world. This is episode number 16, and today we're talking to Jeremiah Ridnar, who's a food entrepreneur. I was like, Jeremiah, how do I introduce you? (laughs) And he was like, I'm a food entrepreneur. He has an amazing story. He's one of the pioneers of bringing a lot of Asian food, specifically soy-based tofu, soy milk, into the Western markets in the United States. So he has a really incredible story and a lot of really specific knowledge, which I, you know, as a general geek of life, I'm soaking it up. Um, So I hope you enjoy that interview. We've got a toast poem for you today. Today's episode is brought to you by me, Norma Jean. I'm a singer-songwriter. My music's used as the intro music on the show, for those of you who are just listening. I draw an original Daily Doodle card You can see all my shenanigans at NJLoves, that's NJ like Norma Jean, loves.com. We've also teamed up with Bali Spirit Festival. A lot of the guests who've been on the show are presenting or performing at Bali Spirit Festival, so we've teamed up with them to offer you guys a special discount code. So use the code STAYWILD if you're going to get the five-day Spirit Pass, which is amazing, or use the code STAYWILDABUNDANCE for the full whole enchilada abundance pass. The festival's April 2nd through 8th, 2018, and for those of you who are listening to the show who've been feeling Bali, this may be your chance to come and experience everything, a lot of things we've been talking about on the show firsthand. If you do like the show, as usual, please like, subscribe, share it with friends, review us, and it's available on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, you can hear it on SoundCloud, wherever you get your podcasts from. So I hope you enjoy the show. Here we go. All right, little humans, welcome to the podcast. I'm here today with Jeremiah Ridenor. Sorry, we're having a giggly moment before we started. He is a food entrepreneur, which is, what is that? Hmm. That's a person who is obsessed with new food products. For me specifically, or redesigning old food products, like tempeh is a perfect example, Okay. Uh, or tofu. But also trying to, for me, I always try to work on the nutritional side. Mm. So it's not just something to eat to make you full, but they're actually products that have some nutritional benefit. Yeah, it's so interesting. <clears throat> a couple of years ago, I was... I think I was listening to something online, and they were talking about how food can have the same amount of calories, but there's nutrient-dense food, and then there's, like, food. Because you can eat a piece of cake that has the same calories as an apple, but the apple is better for you. I mean, (laughs) not for your soul. It doesn't satisfy your sugar craving, but... So, yeah, so I think, you know, a a good example is what I did in America with tofu and Mm -hmm. tempeh and soy milk, where it was completely Asian food. Mm-hmm. And uh, I had a Japanese, a 90-year-old Japanese tofu master that I learned from in Tokyo. <laughs> okay, wait, wait, back that up real quick. <laughs> so when did you go to Japan? That was in the mm, mid-70s. Okay, because you're yeah. an organic pioneer, pretty much. Mm-hmm. You're a part of that whole movement yeah. in the States, you know, the back yeah. to the land. Right. We're right. humans, let's be human yeah. kind so, of a thing. Uh, yeah, where does our food come from? You know, let's right. discover that. Yeah. Right, where does our food come That's <clears throat> such an interesting question. Yeah. Well, let's get into that a bit later. So mm-hmm. mid-70s, you were an organic pioneer. You were like, guys, i got to mm-hmm. go learn about this tofu thing. Yeah, so it wasn't tofu right away. I actually went to a family farm at corn, wheat, and soybean growers. Oh. So every summer I worked the farm. You're from a farm fam. Yeah, from a farm family and soybeans were 
we're growing there. Okay. And so then at one point I decided that I was living in Michigan. I was too organic. I wanted to go back to the family farm area, not work for a relative, work for a commercial farmer and see how they were doing. Okay. Because I always you know, had this impression that they weren't doing well. And so I went down there and got an interview with a guy that had 1,200 acres. Mm-hmm. And I worked for him for a year. So he gave me a house, an acre of land, a dollar an hour. And a, I dollar an hour. a dollar an Back hour. Back these were the days, right? <laughs> these were the days, right? And you could so, fill up your car for less than that. Yeah, I think, I don't know what fuel it was in, 25 cents or something like that. But anyway, I worked with them for a year and learned that they were doing worse than I thought from an organic perspective. Uh, from a uh, chemical yeah. pesticide perspective. Yeah, yeah, okay. Exactly. And that's, that stimulated me to be more organic. Right. You were um, like, guys, no, we yeah. got to, we got to. Well, there used, to be, there used to be feet of topsoil where my relatives are from because the river would overflow and they had what's called bottom land. And so the river would overflow and then you'd have this incredible topsoil. But all that's gone. All that's gone from chemical agriculture. And where in the states are you from originally? Michigan. Okay, cool. Yeah. So when did that happen? When was that process like of onslaught of chemical agriculture in the U.S.? Oh, the Green green Revolution, which happened after World War II. Okay. Where they brought out well, some of the more nasty chemicals out of Germany and turned them into pesticides. So, oh, right, before we knew. Exactly. So okay. a lot of the pesticides are based on poison gas technology. And so that's why they work so well, and that's why humans are affected. Right, okay. Yeah. So you were like, guys, that's not the way, or that's not my way, at least. Uh, yeah, that wasn't my way. That's right. not my way. <clears throat> right. So I want to go organic, and then you... Your family grew soybeans. People always think soybeans are from Asia, and that they don't have mm-hmm. a history in the U.S. Well, they are from Asia, but, you know, this a couple thousand years ago that soybeans, you know, were grown there. I don't know how long it took to figure out that they could eat them and how they prepared them, because they're really not, unless you cook soybeans, they're not digestible. But my interest in tofu came from an epiphany in the back of a little natural food store in Santa Cruz. So I moved to California, West Coast. I'm in the back of the food store. I had a little construction business and looking for some something to do that stimulated my soul. And I'm in the back and I was a vegetarian at the time and I'm pulling a piece of tofu off the shelf and I had this epiphany that this was something I wanted to do. Here was clean vegetable protein, mm. as I always called it, from the beginning of the food chain, mm. not down the stream. Yeah. And that it satisfied my need or my desire, my interest in what my family did. They always grew soybeans, but they never ate them. They always went off somewhere and they were fed to animals, basically. Oh, so the history of soy in the U.S. in mainstream was really more agricultural. Agricultural, animal food. So that's part of the Green Revolution. The Green Revolution was one of the biggest inventions of the last hundred years, which happened in the 30s, which is the the Haber-Bosch process. It's a great cocktail Haber Bosch. Yeah, great cocktail questions. Like, great cocktail facts. Yeah. We so know things, the, people. Yeah, yeah what's the, <laughs> what was the biggest invention in the last 100 years? And basically, it's the Haber Bosch invention of urea. And urea is a nitrogen. So, without the invention of urea, you would not have 7 billion people on the planet. It's impossible because there's just not enough nitrogen. Okay. So from the invention of that in the 30s by Haber and Bosch, then it grew and grew. And today, this makes huge problems in the world. Overuse of nitrogen, which makes the dead zones at the end of rivers, like in the Gulf of Mexico and places like that, because people overuse it. And the nitrogen washes downstream. But it does increase the yields significantly. And so people can eat. Right. So if with no Haber-Bosch, no urea nitrogen, there wouldn't be that many people on the planet. Okay, and it's used in the agricultural mm-hmm. process. Right here, right in the rice fields out in front. 
Yeah, I we're, see those we're, guys using it. Ah, okay. Yeah. So we're sitting here in the rice fields, but we're not actually at mine today. We're at Jeremiah's. He's one of my <laughs> he's one of my my neighbors here in the rice fields of Bali. So in the seventies, you had this aha moment. Not mm-hmm. Urea, but Eureka. Eureka. <laughs> Tofu Eureka. Right. Tofu Eureka. Yeah. And then you did you just book a ticket and go to Japan? No, I went and bought the book of Tofu, who was who was written by a guy with a Japanese wife who was close to me, Bill Shirtliff and Akiko, mm-hmm. and I went and saw them. So and they wrote so a bu- book. Yeah, Tofu and Soy Milk. They wrote the book of Tofu. They wrote the book of Soy Milk, the book of Tempeh. Because she was Japanese, he was a Buddhist monk, and they got into the Japanese shops with no American had ever done at that point. That was probably late 60s. Okay. And so they, he had the vision that this is a food that could feed the world mm. without animal agriculture, which is really not sustainable. So... 14 to 16 pounds of soy makes one pound of beef. Right. So why not eat the soy directly? Right. And avoid all the contamination, et cetera, and all the grazing land. And so so I became friends with them, traveled with them, mm-hmm. and then went to see the uh, tofu and soy milk equipment show in Tokyo. There's an equipment show. Like, yeah. these are all the things we use to make tofu. Yeah. Right. Okay. Yeah. And so, um, and this 90-year-old guy was there. Cool. Yeah. And so... <laughs> I decided he was. He taught me the romance of making tofu and soy milk. The and romance. Romance. That's right. The romance of yeah. making tofu. Yeah, the art. Okay. Where he would talk about the Kurds and whey as clouds. The Kurds were clouds. Oh, I love that. That's so Japanese. Like, oh, yeah. I feel like he must have written haikus about oh, it. No, no, absolutely, <laughs> no, absolutely. And then he took me to his 500-year-old tofu restaurant where all they served was tofu. Of course, they had vegetables. And and so I just started following him around. And so then he took me down. <laughs> you were his tofu groupie. <laughs> Absolutely. Right. I was his yes master. Yes master. <laughs> because it was so cool. And it fit in with, there was a soul part of me that it fit in. Mm. Where I was just, I was magnetized to do it. Yeah. And of course, there were no American soy milk tofu makers. Yeah, because nowadays in the in the mainstream markets, you know, pretty much any market you go to, you're going to find soy milk. Yeah, that's right. And so that soy milk, so we were the first company in America to produce a soy milk that didn't have a beanie flavor. Ah, okay. That's the trick. It's very interesting because I've lived in Asia about seven years, Mm -hmm. and there's a lot of different kinds of soy milk. People don't realize the soy milk that you have in the states. It's not the soy milk that you get. In Korea, like I, it's interesting. I lived in South Korea for two years. Mm. I've been to Japan, but mm. I haven't spent that much time mm. there. And there are entire restaurants where you're like, "Oh, what kind of restaurant is this? It's a tofu restaurant." <laughs> and you're like, "Oh, what kind of soy milk is this?" Mm. And there's twenty kinds, right. and they don't mm. taste like it's not made to taste like milk. Mm-hmm. It's made to taste like a bean curd drink. That's right. And that's what they call it, bean curd drink. That's right. Exactly. And so Americans, being brought up on dairy, don't like traditional soy milk. We made traditional soy milk. We sold it. We didn't sell much of it, but we did honey and maple and vanilla. And stuff yeah. like that. A very small market because as soon as you put it near your nose, it smells like beans. Yeah. So I took three years, basically, uh, and worked with a couple of different universities, Cornell and the University of Illinois, to work out a way of producing a milk with no beany flavor. So that was the dairy, what we call dairy-like milk. Dairy-like soy milk. Dairy-like soy milk. Okay, because I know Cornell has a really big hospitality school. So Mm -hmm. do they also have a big food science? Mm -hmm. Yeah, food science. 
cool. Yeah, so we took a couple of the different heat processes and vacuum processes and worked with a company on the West Coast that had the packaging. Because up to then, soy milk was sold in a box on the grocery aisle. And there were bland-tasting milks then, but they were in these aseptic boxes. Yeah. And you never walked past them. You know, no, they need to be in the milk section. They need to be in the milk section. And yeah. so I went to this company that had this new technology, which was not the box, which has two-year shelf life, but the gable top carton that you normally see milk in, the wax carton. It's called a gable top. Gable top, because that's what it is. No, no, like Anne of Green Gables. I get it. <laughs> I don't know who she just, is, but... <laughs> it's, a bo- it's a very famous children's book. <laughs> and so we put it... Because I had a whole distribution company also. Yeah. So we put it in that that carton with this company. Okay. And put it in the dairy section. And sales took off. Because all of a sudden the perception was different. Fresh, for one. Yeah. And it's in the dairy section, so it must taste different. Right. And use brown rice syrup as a sweetener. Mm-hmm. Not, not sugar, and the brown rice syrup was excellent in that it had kind of a, um, a cereal taste to it. And then I fortified it to meet whole milk, calcium, vitamins, and minerals. So we matched nutritionally, uh-huh. and our price was a little higher, mm-hmm. oh, but that's what that's when soy milk took off in America. Okay. That, that stuff. So we were pioneers. Wow. And then and things were going really well until a big dairy came in that was really well financed. <laughs> oh, was that when Got Milk gotcha? <laughs> no, that was when uh, Silk soy milk. Yeah. yeah. Ah, okay. Yeah. So you weren't Silk. Silk was the we big dairy guys. Big dairy guys. Well, Silk was a tofu maker. He was a friend of mine. There was like six Caucasians that were tofu makers and had business sense okay. in America. We all got inspired by Bill Shirtliff's book. And then we made an organization and we had seminars and invited all the scientific people in, you know. And we were getting a lot of like big big companies coming in to come to our seminars. And we had all these old professors who loved us because no one had been interested in their work for a hundred years. <laughs> and tempeh and soy milk was like. And so they they all came and spoke and so it got to be a pretty good thing. We had five or six hundred people and did several, probably did five or six of those events. Okay. And then so I settled in the best market in the country, which was San Francisco. Okay. Lived in Santa Cruz and settled in San Francisco and had a company called Wildwood. Wildwood. Wildwood Natural Foods. Okay. And so our claim to fame was we delivered fresh product to the stores. So we had 14 routes, and we were in the stores three days a week, and nobody could beat us out because our products were fresh and the best tasting. Oh. And the most expensive. (laughs) <laughs> That's the category I like. I want to be the best and the most expensive. Like, like the Whole Foods of... <laughs> oh, yeah, some pre-Whole Foods. Yeah, no, no, I get that. Yeah. But in terms of grocery no, stores, right? right? Exactly. I mean, Whole yeah. Foods is like you're going in and you're like, yeah. here's all my money. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so we were, we were a famous brand. And still is. I sold it to a Korean company some years ago. And okay. so the brand is still out there. And some of the products I made 20 years ago are still on the shelf. And are still them. on the shelf. Yeah. Tofu veggie burgers, which wow. in Japan were called ganmo. 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 G A N M O. Ganmo. Famous in Japan. And it's just fried tofu and vegetables. So. Nice. And that's what I found in Japan were some products like that, how they marinated and baked and fried. And I brought those back and Americanized those. And so those were some of our secondary products. So fresh tofu was first. <coughs> excuse me. And then we did secondary products like the, the baked and 
fried in salads and all sorts of stuff. Wow. So what were like your flagship products? Obviously, like I'm, I'm guessing yeah. fresh tofu. Yeah. yeah right. Yeah, yeah. Like fresh off the as the Japanese master with the the clouds of. <laughs> oh yeah. yeah. Yeah, and then uh, and then probably soy milk. Well, the tofu I made, he wouldn't like because he made tofu that was softer. Americans didn't like that soft, little dicey stuff you find in your miso soup at the Japanese restaurant, where there's no, you can't even, you don't know you chewed it. Right? Yeah. That's called silken tofu. So I made very firm tofu that was high protein. Okay, so you made like the meat substitute tofu. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like the kind where people are like, oh, I'm doing a tofu stir fry. Yeah, so it, it remains in your stir fry. No, right. It doesn't disintegrate. It doesn't into just small pieces. Blah, blah, blah. Right. <laughs> it and so that's how I marketed it. One, I didn't put it in a water pack. I marketed it in a vacuum pack like cheese. So we were the first ones to do that. Ah, okay. And that's when it started to catch on. And then I promoted because now you could squeeze it. We're in a water pack. You don't know what you're getting. No, in a water pack, you're like, is this bean jello? <laughs> like, yeah, what exactly. Is that? Right. Yeah. And, and from an American spoiled. taste palette, right? Yeah. You're just like, this is. Yeah. I don't know what's happening. Yeah. So I marketed it as high protein, and it was. And so that, then people started to get it. And then I started putting out that thing about clean vegetable protein. Got it. And my employees would always tease me about saying, from the beginning of the food chain, you know, they were like, what does that mean? It's like, if you don't know, you should be curious enough to try and find out. Yeah. Some people would understand what that means. So we did stuff like that. And we did a lot of in-store demos where we had a person that was, we called them the demo babes. The demo babes. And guys. I'm assuming guys can be babes. Of course. <laughs> That's true. It's in your perspective. And so they were trained around health issues, and then we were in the stores putting it in people's mouths. Okay. So that was our, I didn't spend any marketing money except for that. Okay. So these people would just be like in the store making yeah. some delicious thing, and then and they'd, they'd be like. You'd come by, and you'd put, put it in their mouth, and you'd talk to them about cholesterol right. or fat or whatever it was. Okay. So that was really a big part of our success in building the brand because we were everywhere and people knew and they told the story that we were authentic and we really did do organic and we walked our talk. Yeah. Yeah. So I want to talk a little bit about organic. Yeah. Now in the States, in the United States, organic is a certified label. Mm -hmm. Is that right? Yeah, USDA. USDA mm -hmm. organic. Yeah. And that means something. It didn't used to mean something, right? It, or it, it was a bit flexible. Well, yeah, we did the Organic Act. We were involved in the Organic Act of 1990 in California. And that was the first one that actually established some rules way before the USDA ever got involved. We were scared the USDA was going to get involved and, and screw it up, which they're trying to. And so that was the first law. And then it expanded. Then you got certifiers involved in training. How do you certify a farm that you're organic? What do you look for? What's the checkpoints? How do you certify a farm that's organic? There's a checklist that you go through. Okay. It's not like, hey, there's no pesticides around, guys. <laughs> they, they, if they're trained correctly, they go and look in your barn. They go in the corners and they're, what's this can of dot, dot, dot doing in here? Okay. That has to go. Wow. And do they take samples of the product and test it? or? No, they don't. They should, and I don't really, I'm not up on the standards right at this minute. They should take soil tests. Okay. But there's a three-year transition period, and there's resistance to that because it makes a farmer in a three-year program, he can't get the organic premium. He's not certified yet. But they feel like it takes that long to change what's in the soil. Well, that makes sense. It makes sense. Yeah, because, yeah. I mean, I mean, do you think it's three years, or do you think it's more or less? Or? Depends on what you used and how persistent it is. Oh, so. okay. <laughs> it depends on what chemicals are yeah. have been living there. Yeah. So there's no, there's no clear 
line to say you have to do a soil test and you can't have any heavy metals or you can't have any residue of pesticides. There's no standard. There is. There's no standard for that, as far as I know. Now, it may be in Europe where they're doing more more work yeah. and more organic farms in Europe. Yeah. And so that was the beginning, and then eventually USDA, that became big enough. You know, or people were like, dollars. no, we want organic. We want organic, that's right. And then the controversies came up was that you, your stuff says organic in it, so where's your certificate? Where's your third-party certificate? Oh, that's like a third parties of an ingredient. Third parties like uh, Oregon Tilth or California Certified Organic Farmers. Okay. They're the people that you would hire to come and inspect your farm. Oh, right. Like you can't just self-certify. No, you can't. Got it. They try. They lie. Oh, okay. Well, you know. They say organic or or they say uh, pesticide-free or there's, you know, there's... Right. There's lots of ways to say that but not say it and make people think, yeah, that's really interesting. So the certifier part is an important part, third party. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so you have the tofu in the vacuum pack, Mm -hmm. which you guys said you were the first people to do. Mm -hmm. And then talk a little bit about tempeh because Mm -hmm. as someone who's from the continental United States... I was not exposed to tempeh mm-hmm. growing up. And a lot of people come to Indonesia because I, I think mm-hmm. tempeh is from Indonesia originally. Oh, Java. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's a soy product similar to tofu, but not. And you come here and you're like, this is fabulous. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So from my understanding, it's because com- tempeh is a little bit more meatier. When you're eating tempeh, yeah. it tastes like meat. Yeah. It actually has technically better protein. One, it's fermented. But yeah. two, you're eating the whole bean. Or tempeh. Or so, or tofu is made from milk, and so you separate the fibrous material out when you're making the milk. Okay. You actually make pound for pound or kilo by kilo. You're making as much of the wet fiber as you are tofu, and then that goes oh. to the that the animals or we used to make products out of it. Oh. Like but where tempeh, you're just dehulling the bean. You're eating the whole bean. Yeah. So for those of you at home who aren't really sure exactly about what tempeh is, it's compressed soybeans, and it, it looks like tofu, but it's lumpy because it's compressed. Isn't quite right. Sorry, it's fermented <laughs> compressed. No, ferment, they're not compressed. No, fermented is like it's it's grown. You inoculate it. The technical term is Rhizopus oligosporus, which is a fungus. Okay. So when you you cook the beans, you cool them, mm-hmm. and then you put the inoculant on there, the starter. Like, like yogurt. yogurt. Like yogurt. Okay. And so now, and you put them in a little bag with holes, and then the, the mycelium begins to grow and pre-digests the beans. And so if you had to cook those soybeans to make them digestible, you'd have to cook them for a couple of hours or longer. But tempeh, you only cook them for like 30 or 45 minutes. And now you, you inoculate it, and that runs through and predigests those beans and holds it together like a cake. Yeah, there, I mean, that's why I thought it was compressed because it's yeah. kind of it's held together. It's held but together. tempeh has a lot of probiotics in it, right? Like yogurt? No. 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 It's just one, it's, there's more than one strain in there, but I wouldn't call it a probiotic. Okay. Because that's more, more specific, a probiotic specific. Okay, but it's definitely fermented. Yeah. Yeah, we brought out the first probiotic yogurt way before probiotics were popular. Oh, right. Not non-dairy yogurt, yeah. which was fun. That's how I learned about probiotics. Ah, was it soy? Yeah, soy milk. Soy milk yogurt. You made a soy milk yogurt. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it had probiotics in it. All right, yeah. cool. It was so, good. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's interesting because here in Bali, there's there's lots of non-dairy options, right? Mm-hmm. So you can go to a lot of different cafes, and there's coconut yogurt. Yeah, yeah, it's good too. Um, yeah, it's very good. It's yeah. delicious. Yeah. <laughs> but um, it's interesting because. For a lot of people at home, it's it's actually really easy to make these things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is. That's so true. 
There's little, there's kits. Coconut milk operates the same as soy milk, basically. It's just the medium has protein. Yeah. But the bacteria needs some sugar. Okay. To actually, to be able to. And we used organic dextrin, which is a, a type of sugar. So they had something to feed on and to grow in. And so tempeh, you don't need to do that. Basically, tempeh just needs air. And here, it's this bright temperature. Right, we're here in the tropics. <laughs> Everything is warm and moist. Yeah. <laughs> it's perfect for it to grow. In America, I had to build a special room and go through all these steps. But I grew tempeh. That was the first soy food I did before tofu because it had vegetarian B12. Yes, this is something I want to talk about a little bit. So for a lot of people who follow a vegetarian diet, there's a lack of vitamin B12, which mm -hmm. is really one of the few things that you can't get from eating just vegetables. Mm -hmm. But tempeh mm -hmm. has B12, yeah. theoretically. Theoretically. So from my understanding is that the bacteria mm -hmm. in tempeh, why don't you talk about it a little bit? Because mm -hmm. I'm just going <laughs> to... Mm -hmm. Well, the, the, as it grows, and as I was saying here, and I've been to Java and saw tempeh makers and worked with them, and it's a multicultural thing. In America, we would order rhizoplus globigosporus, and it would be clean. And that's what I was saying to you earlier, was right. that after a while, a couple years later, because I, I made a claim, a B12 claim from a lab test. A couple years later, I wanted to redo that test, and it came out way less, very low in B12. And I, I couldn't figure out what happened. And it was because we're using this very clean strain, All plus right. sanitized conditions, which is not happening on Java. Mm -hmm. Sanitized conditions. And so the B12 wasn't allowed like to be in the open air. It's in a controlled room, filtered air. We were very careful with it. And so the B12, which in normal conditions, it would synthesize out of the air by growing because it was exposed. It was exposed, yeah, it's in banana leaves. Right, okay, this is so <clears throat> interesting. So Java, for those of you at home listening, is an island here in Indonesia. It's pretty much the island where the capital is, and it's the mm -hmm. very highly populated. So when you say multicultural, you don't mean multicultural like our culture. You mean multicultural like yogurt culture. That's right, exactly, <laughs> bacteria. Yeah. So tempeh is really not a bacteria. It's a fungus. Okay. The difference. So the fungus, if you had mushrooms right, in, in the soil, if you're yeah. a mushroom hunter, you go out and you find the mushroom. When you pull the mushroom up, you see there's this white stuff there. And yeah. that's, that's the roots. That's the mycelium. The mycelium gains a certain mass, and then it'll put out a fruiting body. That's what they call it, a mushroom. Same thing happens in tempeh. Oh, you're harvesting before you get to the mushroom stage. Does some, if you leave it out, will it get mushrooms on it? It'll get mushrooms, but they're microscopic. Oh, okay. So what you'll see in, in America, and this used to be a problem, was you have little pinholes in the bag. Mm -hmm. the more air is there, more oxygen is available at the pinhole, and it'll turn black. And so people would say to me, it's like, well, your tempeh spoil. It's got black spots on it. It's like, no, those black spots are naturally occurring. It just went to the fruiting stage. So you grew the mycelium out, you left it in there longer, and it would go to the fruiting stage. So you'd see the little black spots on there. So it's like integrating a new product in America was very difficult. That's so interesting. And it, I mean, because the, the health codes and the health standard for mm -hmm. the cleanliness standard in yeah. the States yeah. is very high. Yeah. But some, maybe sometimes that's not the best thing. That's not the best Depends on how you look at it. Uh, well, yeah. I mean, obviously, you Your know, the immune like, system needs to be well intact, right? <laughs> yes. So I think for everyone in general, it's good. But yeah. I think if you're trying to get B12 from a vegetarian source, yeah. mm -hmm. you're not going to get it from vacuum-packed, sterile environment where you're growing the tempeh. So I actually bought vegetarian B12 that was grown in a lab, 
And then we added that to the tempeh so that I could be righteous on my label because I made a B12 claim. Wow. Yeah. Now, is anybody else doing that? Nobody, as far as I know, was doing that. Right. But that was a step that we took because we wanted to have high integrity. Yeah. People ask us, you know, because they, they were trying to get their B12 from tempeh. That's one of the part of the advertising that we did. Yeah. Again, to Americanize it, why do I want to buy this product? It looks like it belongs in my compost pile <laughs> when it's on the shelf. <laughs> and so that's when we added the protein idea to educate people and the B12 idea and the fermentation idea so that people could see tempeh in a broader light. Where in Java, you know, it, that, that probably grew on a lot of stuff and at some point they decided to eat it. I don't think they planned to make tempeh. Oh, you think it was an accidental invention? I think, I think it grew on your your underwear, on your socks, or in your <laughs> hair. And they decided they were hungry one day, and they decided we should eat it. Something like that, for sure. Because it wasn't like it just got invented into tempeh. It wasn't conscious. It, I, that's what I don't think. Or intentional. Yeah, okay. I don't think it was intentional. Interesting, interesting. Okay, so you had this company for quite a few years, and it sounds like that it really was not only something that you became your life, but something you really loved. That's right, yeah. It was a lifestyle business. It's like, you know, we, we were really well known, but just on the West Coast and mostly focused in that Big Sur to Santa Rosa, Sacramento. That was our big triangle where we delivered ourselves. We handled our own product. We bought the returns off the shelf before date. And so, and our stores were there with the big Wildwood logo on them and all the drivers and all the people who were doing the demo had the Wildwood t-shirt. And they were stocking the shelf, talking to the customers. I trained them. Yeah. I said, this is point, this is point of sale. This is where the magic happens. This is where you have to be engaged with your customer. It worked. It worked really well. Wow. That's amazing. It's so interesting because a lot of the time, in general, I think, but also in in a Western country, there's not a lot of ownership in terms of people's job and the product that they're selling. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, because you give it away to other distributors, other people that don't care. It's you're just another product. So even when we expanded, I went out and found juice companies that delivered like we did. Yeah. And even at times, I would train them. How do you become successful at this? Because you can deliver three days a week, but can you make money at that? And nobody, even when I sold to the Koreans, they, they've sold off all those trucks and got rid of that. I told them, I said, this is your marketing arm. This is what makes Wild Butch famous. Yeah, yeah, because you're driving down the, I mean, in California, for a lot of people who maybe haven't been or, or traveled through California a lot, it's a car culture. Yeah, yeah. So if you're on the road and your truck say, Wildwood Farms or whatever yeah, yeah, it is, yeah. it, there's a conscious association there. Absolutely. That's what we always people always said because the trucks were in the stores. They were out in the roads every day, and the trucks were billboard size. They weren't semi-trucks. They were small refrigerated trucks. Yeah. So you're driving down the freeway, and you can see, and people always say, I see your trucks everywhere. It's like, that's it. Yeah. That's really smart. It's so funny because a lot of the time when, when people are thinking about marketing, you know, they go into all of these standard official channels, yep. and sometimes it's the simple things that really bring that awareness to your yep. brand. Yep. So I even had to work with my chief financial officer who came from a much bigger company yeah. and said to him, it's like, the distribution cost isn't all distribution costs. It's like, this is marketing. So let's let the trucks and the drive, we'll, we'll schedule that in distribution, but there's a big piece of it that goes into the marketing budget. Yeah. Yeah, because that's what it was. Like, how do you make contact? What's marketing all about? It's like trying to develop a two-way conversation yeah. with your customer. It's relational. Number one, it's relationship. Yeah. And so those relationships were incredibly solid there. Cool. Yeah. All right. So you did that for a very long time. Mm. And then how did you get into where you are now, which is the sweet life? <laughs> it is the sweet life here, that's for sure. I sold the company probably 2000 and. 
or something like that to the biggest organic company in South Korea. And they were interested in their brand and, and the products. Mm-hmm. And so then they started shipping some of the products over into Korea and back and forth. Mm-hmm. And um, I hung around for a while. I started another company called Wise Solutions, which are petroleum replacements, lubricants mostly, industrial lubricants like hydraulic fluid and greases and products like that. Oh, right. But that weren't from oil. Weren't from oil. Some of the ingredients were. So they some were hybrids and some were pure. Okay. And it's still going. It's still ongoing. It's not, it's not huge because it's very difficult to break into the petroleum industry. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, really? <I laughs> Out learned. of all the industries in the world, I'd say, like, sure. cars, airplanes, and petroleum are I, probably the hardest. No, really? I, I had my, I was my visionary mind. Yeah. My entrepreneurial mind was way bigger than... Because I thought, well, people, of course they will. They want to get rid of petroleum, of course. And we have, you know, we have good clients. You know, NOAA. We sell to some of the NOAA boats in America. And it's a lot of farmers. Mm. But, you know, it's just... Chugging along, yeah. So I have a dear, dear friend who's we moved it near his house in a big greenhouse, and so he runs that product. But so since I've been over here, I worked for. Uh, I didn't come looking for a job, but I came to study coconut sugar because sweeteners were always a big issue in our business. Yeah. Deciding what was ethically the right sweetener to use based on all the issues, the diabetes and obesity and on and on. Right. And so coconut sugar is low glycemic. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was consulting with the company and I said, this should be your next product. He did virgin coconut oil. I said, you should try coconut sugar. And he said, we'd like to. We can't get enough. And as an entrepreneur, <laughs> my son was already over here. He's a big wave surfer and photographer, so he was already okay. over here in Bali. Yeah, it's so funny. A lot of the time, the first people to come over to Bali are really those wave chasers. No, that's right. Those surf boys come over, right. and then they're like, oh, my God, Indonesia is so great. And then everyone comes over, and they're like, oh, I found this thing that I really like, right? Whether it's food or batik, you know, traditional yeah. fabric dyeing or whatever it is. You know, it's, it's a very culturally rich country. Yeah, yeah so diverse. And so, in that process of being here and trying to do nothing, um, <laughs> which is impossible for a serial entrepreneur, I went to one of the villages here in Bali that is the, they make coconut sugar. And then I realized why there's not enough, because you have to climb a tree to get it <laughs> twice a day. You have to climb a coconut tree. You have yeah. to climb a palm tree. You have to climb a like, coconut like tree. Like full-on island style. You know, the shimmy up the thing. Yeah, absolutely. And <laughs> I'm doing a little shimmy as I describe it. That's right. Where you like kind of, you know, yeah. use all fours and get yeah. to the top. And yeah. I, I, I once had a couple, like I was once, I think, on Lombok. Mm-hmm. And I we were standing next to this coconut tree and I or this palm tree. And I said, oh, it would be so nice to have a coconut. And this guy shimmied all the way to the top, yeah. cut me off a coconut yeah. and brought it down. And it was yeah. like... I mean, it could have been rotten, but it was the best coconut I ever yep. tasted because yep. I saw the guy climb yep. the tree. No. And it actually was very fresh. It was like perfectly young yeah. coconut. But yeah. It's amazing how you feel afterwards when you're thirsty and out like that. Ooh. I've been out in the jungle like that, and the guys got, and you, you get the energy, you get rehydration. It's amazing. Yeah. But, you know, coconut sugar isn't made from coconuts. Coconut sugar, you cut the coconuts off. And then the bloom comes out that's going to make the coconuts, right? Uh-huh. I'm, I'm making my hand gesture. Yeah, 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 the yeah. There's, like, there's a stem the, happening. Yeah, yeah. The bloom comes out, and it's big, and it comes out like this, and when it gets to the right stage, before it breaks open into the multi-coconut uh-huh. bloom, at that right stage, you cut the end off, and you put a little bucket underneath it, and the sap, the nectar from the bloom is what you make sugar from, not from coconut. That's why it's that's, difficult to get coconut that's sugar. Really, that's really intensive. So wait a minute. You have to cut the co- you have to climb up the tree, yep. 
cut the coconuts off, yep. wait till the, the tree mm-hmm. is ready to produce more coconuts, Bloom. and then yep. right before it blooms, you have to cut the end off. Yep. And do they put a bag there? Or? It's usually use a piece of, uh, of bamboo. Okay. Or so they use a nasty piece of contaminated plastic. Right, <laughs> right, right. Okay. But it's the bloom. I want to get clear on that. And then you have to keep that up there. So you have to tie it up somehow you to collect all the... And you climb twice a day. Because it really drips out? It really drips up. But the reason you climb twice a day is because it's fermenting. It's nectar. And so bees are in there and and different things that are different bacteria and yeast and all sorts of stuff. As soon as the first drop goes, it's starting to ferment. Oh. So they climb at 6 a.m. and they climb at 6 p.m. every day. And then bring it down and cook it as quickly as possible to kill the bacteria. Because once it starts fermenting, it's turning into alcohol, which is another, a, that's another a, big business yeah. here. <laughs> that's a whole other fun, yeah. fun local we business here. We can't talk here. about that because we don't have licenses. Right? They yeah, don't ever a, make alcohol. I'm sorry about that. They never make alcohol. No, no, no. It's very local. <laughs> if, you go, if you go to some really rural parts of Indonesia, you can buy... Arak or Tuak. Or Tuak. Right, which is, I didn't realize that's how it's made. Wow. It's like a local kind of palm wine. So is all coconut sugar, palm sugar, it's all made that way? All made that way. So there's no, is there a difference between coconut sugar and palm sugar? Different trees. That's it? Yeah. So one tree is from, is like, is a coconut blooming creating tree. Yeah. And the other is just like another kind of palm tree? Yeah. Yeah. But that the guys another still kind have of bloom. It's the same thing. But it blooms. It doesn't make coconuts. When it blooms, it makes these other kind of nuts that you can squish oil out of and stuff. They do the same thing. They cut it. They catch it. Catch the nectar. Then you take the nectar down, and they've got these walks in the village with wood fires, and they're cooking the nectar down to make syrup, right? In other words, it's evaporation yeah. on, on a village level. And then they take it further down, and they make what's called batok. And batok is a, a block. It's like in a coconut mold, and batok is a wet sugar. So it's still molded, but it's not a granular sugar like you see in the stores in America. Right. Granulated coconut sugar is cooked further than that. And I can talk about bricks and all that stuff, but it's probably too technical. So it's it's really an, an, a labor-intensive process. That's why there's only so much. That's why coconut... <laughs> so for those of you in the States or around the world... I guess that's why coconut sugar is 15 bucks. That's exactly right. Wow. Because yeah. here in Bali, it's not, I mean, white sugar is cheaper even here in Absolutely. Indonesia that's in right. Bali, but you don't realize yeah. how labor, wow, yep. <laughs> mind blown. Yeah. Wow. So I, so I went to work, met the guy after that, then I heard there was another company here that was doing coconut sugar called Big Tree Farms. Yep. And I went and met the CEO. and. He knew my work with Wildwood. He survived in college on my products that were <laughs> that were past date. He would be a dumpster diver. Oh my gosh! <laughs> He'd go in and get my products out of the dumpster. So we had this rapport right away. He That's was a great very guy. funny. Yeah. And I met his family, and I said, "I'm not really looking for a job. I just want to buy coconut sugar." And he, he said, well, "We don't we don't want to do more products, but we need a chief operations officer." <laughs> and I said, "So well, tell me more about that, you know." And so it was a great way for me to establish my research that I was doing on coconut sugar, but to try in Indonesia where white folks never go. So we had two sugar plants on Java, 14,000 certified organic farmers, and, and then another sugar plant up in Sulawesi. Okay. And so, so I managed an 8,000 tree plantation in Sulawesi, which is 
North Sulawesi is so incredibly beautiful. World class diving up there. Yes, yeah, yeah. yeah. I have quite a few scuba diver friends. Mm-hmm. Um, it's so interesting because. Yeah, in Indonesia, I mean, Indonesia has over 10,000 islands, right? I think now they're saying over 12,000. But, I mean, really, some of these islands have millions and millions and millions of people, but you've never heard of them. And most people who are on, you know, a regular backpacking trail or traveling through or want to come on a holiday, they will never go there. And they're full of, like, pristine beaches. (laughs) Great coral, incredible coral. Yeah, it's really incredible. Because Bali is quite a big tourist attraction. Yeah. So that's... So I've worked for them for two and a half years. Okay. And um, worked a lot on the certified organic side, but a lot on the production side, and made syrup for them. They had a syrup that was um, going bad before dates, so we did a lot of work with syrup, which is now in America. Yeah. Um, on the shelves. I think it's at Whole Foods. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Big Tree is probably the largest, well, they are the largest organic producer in Indonesia of coconut sugar. Right. Yeah. So that was totally fascinating, and so I worked for them for about two and a half years, and then quit, resigned, and because I had a motorcycle accident, so I Ooh. needed to have some surgery. So Ooh. it was a good time from a number of points of view. It's yeah. interesting, but it, it, yeah, in Bali, people always have. I've found that people always have these accidents. The timing is always, mm-hmm. yeah. I mean, it's always, yeah. Yeah, it's always, it's, it's always like right before people leave or right when yeah. they need to take a break or slow down. or yeah. It's, yeah, <laughs> The can. island has a way of slowing you down when, it, right. when you need to. That's right. That's right. So right before I went to Bangkok for surgery, I went to India. And in India, I drank fresh cane juice on the street. And uh, it was amazing. Yeah, And I just came from working with coconut sugar, localicemic and trace minerals, and did a lot of the research on, like I did with tofu, on why do you buy this product? Not just because it's sweet, but it has other attributes. Right. And I drink the cane juice on the street. And, I, I, and, the, and this is sugar cane juice. This is sugar cane juice, yeah. They just take the cane. It's sitting there next to the juice guy, and you say, I'll have a cup. And you know, he takes the cane, jams it in the machine, the juice runs out, put a little ice in it and some lemon, and you drink it. I was I was stunned. I'm standing. I was like, I wonder if this is localicemic. <laughs> my food entrepreneur, entrepreneur has come out <laughs> immediately, and because so much of the food supply is refined, and even soy was like that, and so I had different different attributes. Yeah, uh, even anti-cancer attributes, but only in the whole soy. When in America. They, they separated it out. They took the fat out, took the protein out, and it didn't have the same functionality. Oh. So cane juice is the same. So they take the cane juice, they squish it, they add chemicals to it, they heat it, they separate out the sucrose, the white sugar, from the molasses. The molasses has all the trace minerals and vitamins in it and a lot of antioxidants. Where does that go? Feed animals. And the white sugar goes in and... and is the addicting substances that is causing right. the epidemic and diabetes mainly. Wow, so it's really the refining of the product that does the damage. Exactly, that's exactly right. And the separating of the components, you know, because it's sucrose. My research now, and I have a patent on a process, a cold process for cane juice to make syrup. The issue there is that when it's synergistically all together and you drink it, then your body treats it like a whole food. 
because you still have the enzymes are still in there. The trace it, minerals it, it are still in It treats it like you just ate an apple, like a fruit. Exactly. It just goes through. It goes through the liver and kidneys, all through the digestive process. When you eat white sugar, it can actually get into your bloodstream in the stomach because there's, there's nothing. There's nothing to stop it. There's nothing to stop it. There's no nutrients in it. They've removed all those, bleached it even, and make it look like you know what we're used to seeing our whole lives. So my syrup is green. <laughs> green syrup. All right, well, we're going to take a short break, and then I want to talk about this a little bit more. Okay. Sweet. Exciting news, little humans. Today's episode is brought to you by me, Norma Jean. I make all my art, music, daily doodle cartoons, which you can see on my website, NJ Loves. That's NJ like NormaJeanLoves.com. We've also teamed up with Bali Spirit Festival. It's been mentioned a few times on the podcast, and some of the guests are going to present there. Levi Banner, Nadine McNeil, Awahoshi. It's April 2nd through 8th, 2018. And we've teamed up with them to offer you guys a discount to come to Bali and come to Bali Spirit Festival. So hopefully it's that extra little push to get you over here. Use the code STAYWILD for $40 off the five-day spirit pass or STAYWILDABUNDANCE for $50 off the full enchilada abundance pass. So hopefully for those of you that are listening to the podcast and really resonating with the content, with the guests, with the spirit of Bali, it'll help get you here to Bali to meet some of the people that have come on the podcast and really join the spirit of what we're doing. If you do like the podcast, as usual, please subscribe, write us a review on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, share the show with your friends. It's available on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, and also Stitcher, SoundCloud, wherever you get your podcasts from. So, you know, every time you hear a bell, an angel gets its wings. (laughs) And every time you write a review and share the show, other people are able to find it. It moves us up in the rankings. So hopefully in the, in the algorithm. So Hopefully more people will find the show and can share in all of these amazing stories and journeys and niche expertise. So I hope you're enjoying today's episode and let's get back to it. All right, everyone, we're back here with Jeremiah Ridnor, food entrepreneur, too exciting. Um, (laughs) So before the break, we were talking about sugarcane and you went to India you were, where were you in India? Mumbai. You were in <clears throat> Mumbai, which is kind of like the New York City, right? It's big. It's the New York City of, of India. It's busy. It's wild. And you were on the street, and you got this fresh sugarcane juice. Yep. yep. That's the guy's business. He has a little machine. Yeah. And he has cut the cane, got delivered the cane, and they're all over. I mean, yeah. to get a sense about fresh cane juice, it's the national drink of Pakistan, they have a huge festival every year. It's, it's the it's national like, drink of Pakistan. And Nepal. And Nepal. And like, it's not Coca-Cola. It's not coffee. No. It's because it's, it's, uh, it's seen as medicine. In Ayurvedic medicine, cane juice is used for liver and kidney problems. And other things. Sugar cane juice. Sugar okay. Cane juice. Yeah. Fresh. Okay. okay. And for those of you <clears> at home, <throat> Ayurvedic medicine is like the traditional... Um, Hindu. Yeah, it's like the traditional Hindu or mm-hmm. uh, Indian um, philosophy of mm-hmm. medicine. So kind yeah. of like Chinese medicine, there's Ayurvedic from India. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's very interesting because it's green. It's green. It's green. And I, I just went to Singapore actually recently, and when you're 
you know, they have these beautiful hawker stalls. They've Singapore is one of those places where they've they kind of have a managed chaos. <laughs> and so they took all their food Very stalls, managed. right? They took all their food stalls, they brought them inside and they're all regulated mm-hmm. and they're in these like like kind of mini mall food mm-hmm. centers. Mm-hmm. And I went through and I had fresh sugarcane juice and it's not juiced regularly like you would with a normal juicer or even a food blender. There's it's a, it's there's a crank. Rollers. There's rollers. Yeah. It's it's it, it requires some arm muscle. Yeah, absolutely. So you went to India and you were were you on the street? Yeah. Okay. I've never been to, I haven't been to India yet. So you're on the street, you had this amazing sugarcane juice, and then you're like, what is up? Because yeah, yeah. <laughs> the flavor was so good. It yeah. was like an ambrosia kind of flavor to it. And, <clears throat> and so then I, based on my sugar background, my coconut sugar training. Right, the food entrepreneur kicked in. <laughs> yeah, and came back and I did research on it. And today, <clears throat> in India, to give you an idea, India is over a billion people. Probably a hundred million people today drank fresh cane juice. It's, like every day? I'm not saying the same hundred million every day. Yeah. I'm just saying it's that popular in the summertime. Wow. Yeah. Significant volume in, in cane juice. Wow. Brazil, very similar. More popular in India. India is the largest sugarcane grower in the world. Brazil is number two. Indonesia is like number nine, something like that. Wow. Okay. And and what's the process like for growing sugarcane? Because a lot of people talk about like sustainable things that grow, especially bamboo here mm-hmm. in Indonesia. Mm-hmm. Does it grow fast? Is it sustainable? Well, like I've got some growing over there over my. Mm-hmm. We're here at Jeremiah's door. house in the rice fields. <laughs> and, uh, so I've got three varieties growing. It's a ten to twelve month crop. Okay. So it's not like soybeans in 110 days. Yeah. Yeah. But because it's a grass, you can take it and cut it, and it grows back up again. And okay, so, so the so harvesting is rather simple. It's, yeah, basically. But So you can let it grow two or three cuttings. Some in the sugar industry go five or six cuttings, and then they dig the roots up and then replant. Excuse me. That's very cool. It is pretty cool, but for the juice side, I've done a lot of research, went to the Philippines, went to Vietnam, and you know, went out into the fields. How are they growing it? Um, and on Java. And they grow it in a different way for juice than they do for what's called mill cane that goes to make sugar and molasses. They grow it differently? <clears throat> yeah. But the same the same varietal? No, different than what's grown for mill cane, which goes to the sugar mill. Okay, the so sugar- there's a couple different kinds of sugar cane that yeah, are grown. Yeah, there's hundreds. Hundreds? Hundreds of varieties. So just two weeks ago, I was in Surabaya, and I went out to the sugar cane research run by the government and they have you go through a catalog and you look based on what, what do you want color nutrition sweetness length of time that you can grow it wow so they're like apples <laughs> yeah. i mean like, you know there's like hundreds of kinds of apples yeah. but like That's you right. go to the grocery store and there's like five kinds yeah right. and you know if you've ever seen a sugar cane it, it looks it looks kind of like a piece of bamboo yeah, it does. right it has it lo- the nodes on it yeah it has the nodes it looks yeah. like a piece of bamboo but yeah. generally in the states you know if you see one at a health food store or maybe yeah. a farmer's market you only kind of really see yeah. one kind that's right and so in bali i thought i'd come back and start a juice business in bali that's why i bought the little juice machine oh there. yeah jeremiah has a hand like the the no, sugar cane not a hand oh okay <laughs> And I think it is actually electric in Singapore. It was electric as well. Yeah, You're right. <laughs> uh, they do have some run by buffalo in India. Crush the cane with buffalo. That is walking around. That's that's <laughs> next level. <laughs> oh yeah, that's next level. Uh, but here in Bali, it, there's small amounts of cane grown, but only for ceremony. 
So Bali, Balinese, you don't find any sugarcane machines here. Because people don't drink sugarcane juice. No, people in even in other parts of Indonesia I've been yep, to. Yep. Sugarcane <clears throat> juice is not it's not a refreshing, delicious <clears throat> beverage you can yeah, find yeah, places. Yeah, yeah. And because of its um, it's similar to the coconut sap that I was saying that it ferments right away. Mm. Same way with the juice. So it, it's it's such a natural So you drink it medium. fresh. You drink it fresh. So what I'm working on what I have the patent on is a cold process that will make syrup or powder. So now, in a syrup form, I can put it in a bottle like I did with the coconut syrup, and it'll last 12 to 18 months. So that's a big revolution. Wow. Yeah. And now you can have it as an ingredient. So in the beginning, we're going to sell it as an industrial ingredient to add as a sweetener. And then if people want to, they could people in America could buy the syrup, they could dilute it into juice and sell it as juice. Wow. So you can either buy the syrup like a cordial and yeah. dil- like put it in and then add it to like sparkling water or, or regular it, water. Or, or add it to cereal. Or add it to cereal. Or a drink. Or a drink. So you could use it as a sweetener. Oh. So now you've got a sweetener. Like agave good. syrup. Yeah. So okay. now you've got a, a, an ingredient that is very high in antioxidants and trace minerals. So if you study the digestive cycle, because that's where I had to go, because I'm, I'm not a chemist, I had to go and I studied the digestive cycle. Right. And part of the digestive cycle includes these trace minerals, small amounts, that are, are catalysts in your digestive cycle. So the cane juice has this perfect profile of antioxidants, vitamins and minerals, and enzymes that, like I said, your body treats it like a whole food, and your sugar doesn't spike. So you get the benefit of the energy so that the sucrose is turned into, in the body is turned into glucose and what they call ATP. And ATP powers the cells. Okay. So it's a a simple process in in that fresh sugarcane juice, simple process to go from the sweet into the energy in the cells without spiking your blood sugar. Without spiking the, oh, cool. So I've seen, I drank, when I went to the Philippines, I drank. In 45 minutes, I drank three eight-ounce glasses to see what would happen, because oh. I'm fairly sensitive. Sugar rush. <laughs> no. Energy. Really? I didn't feel a sugar rush. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I think you get a bigger sugar rush from refined sugar, because it's unrefined. That's because it doesn't go through your digestive system. It goes right into the bloodstream. That's why your blood goes like that. Ah, okay. Because it can get through the cell walls. It doesn't go through that whole metabolism process. Okay, so, so it's the really... The fiber also that's in the juice slows down your metabolism of the sugar. So you get more energy from it. Not like, like this. It does go up. It should. Because yeah. you know, it's a carbohydrate, so it should go up. Right. So anyway. So that's, that's amazing. It is amazing. That's amazing. Cool. So coming from a background where you really, like you said earlier before the break... You're all about, we have a bit of a breeze here, so if you can hear it, <laughs> it's, it's rolling through. It's rolling through. Um, so, like you were saying about eating food from the beginning of the food chain, mm-hmm. how do people, how can people at home do that? Mm-hmm. So, instead of um, the cow, let's just say, or the pig or the chicken, eating grain that goes through the energetic exchange in the animal, and like I said, 12 to 14 pounds of soybeans to make one pound of meat. And that's why in the world now, from a climate change point of view, people are saying the best thing you can do is to become a vegetarian. Yeah. 
Why? Because all those animals are out there farting and eating up the grass yeah. and turn it into meat. So it's a very inefficient process for getting protein. So why not just eat the grain directly? Right. And so from the protein point of view, which we were talking about earlier, that quinoa is real interesting. That's mm-hmm. good protein. And can be eaten directly really easily. And it's, it's highly available. And so I'm not sure I'm answering your question. <laughs> but from the point of view of being a vegetarian, what we would encourage people to do when I was in the tofu business yeah. was omnivore is really comfortable for most people. In other words, I, I eat meat and I'm a vegetarian yeah. the other days of the week. So one day a week, we just encourage people one day a week, be a vegetarian. Okay, so to reduce your food consumption one day a week oh. or your meat consumption. Yeah. And then okay. see how you feel. Yeah. And so more sensitive people will feel that one day a week. And yeah. then they're more attracted and they're less afraid of being a vegetarian. Because a lot of it's fear. I love meat. I love meat. I still eat pork. I'm not a vegetarian any longer. <laughs> I'm still an omnivore. But here at the house, my Pimbantu vegetarian all week. Yeah, I don't actually cook meat at home. It's no. interesting. No. And it's not because I don't eat meat. It's because of the smell and the sanitation. That's I just it. don't want to deal with it. Yeah. And I, that is the problem is that... It's been concentrated. The meat production has been concentrated. And so if you have a genetically modified soybean and they're consuming 14 pounds of it and it's been sprayed with pesticides and herbicides, it concentrates in the fat in the meat. The pesticides. The pesticides and herbicides. Concentrate. Concentrate in the fat of the meat. So it's not that if you if you had farmers like when I grew up, my uncle had a couple of pigs and four or five cows, and yeah. he'd milk them and he'd kill a cow once or twice a year. Yeah, and, and then you'd all eat steak. And then and yeah, exactly. And then the manure went onto the fields, and it was a balanced system. Right. Where now you've got the concentrated systems, and and it was eating the grain that he was growing. Right. Now you've got the concentrated systems, and all the chemicalized agriculture is being fed to the animals and concentrated into the meat. And then the meat's consumed. And so the, the quality is really what's affected. If you have a piece of grass-fed beef as compared to normal, you immediately, I immediately know. The difference. The difference in taste and flavor. Plus, if you're educated about where the meat comes from, then you feel better because you're supporting that farmer that you probably know. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Like, when you go to farmer's market, I know what you asked me. You said, how do you have access to your food? Yeah. The farmer market thing is what's going on in America and everywhere. Yeah. Traditionally, it's always been that way. Go to the farmer's market. Go to your farmer's market. Support those guys. Support your local farmers. Now you're looking at the guy who raised the meat. You can ask him. Yeah. You can tell if he's lying. (laughs) Yeah. You can ask him, what did you feed this animal? And do you feed vitamins and minerals, or do you feed other things? Do you give them hormones to produce fatter, to make... You can ask all those questions. You inform yourself. But now you have a relationship directly with the farmer. It's there's You've eliminated the middlemen. Yeah. The, the producer, the distributor, the retailer. So now you're paying less money for that meat. You know the farmer who grew it, so you're aware of what the circumstances were. Yeah. And you've paid him more money than he's made before because he sells it to a distributor. Right. right? Now you're, you're working directly with him, and that's the way, from vegetable all the way. If you can support those farmers' markets, just like people used to do, people still do in Europe, they maybe shop every day. Here in Bali, people go to the market every morning. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting, actually. A lot of Indonesian people I know don't have refrigerators. No. 
<laughs> because every day, every if the, day. whatever they want to eat, they yeah. go to the market at 6 a.m. and yeah. they buy it. Yeah, that's right. And they know the guy who raised the chicken, and they know the exactly. the woman who grew the tomatoes. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And that's then you really can say to them, you know, the tomatoes last week, they weren't so good. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Should I come earlier and get better ones? Or yeah, can you save me some? Yeah. yeah. And then you have the humanistic exchange between the people who are growing your food. Yeah. Right? And then maybe you can say, could you, that was really good. Can I have a few of those seeds? I want to grow those in my backyard. Mm. There's a whole dynamic that can go on. So that's my, that's the, that's the big thing. Also, as soon as the vegetable is cut, then the enzyme activity is starting to change. So as soon as you eat it, it's much better for you yeah. from a consumption point of view. Well, when you go to the supermarket, that vegetable could have been cut two weeks ago. Right. And now in a, in a, in a truckload, right, of varying temperatures gets sent to someplace that now it's cut, it's packaged in some plastic, which is off-gassing for sure, and now it goes into some warehouse, and now it's distributed out to their 300 stores. So that tomato or broccoli was probably two weeks old. It's lost so much of its enzyme and vitamin vitality that you're eating something that's like a representative of broccoli. <laughs> it's, it's green, right? It represents it. It looks like broccoli. It tastes like broccoli, but nutritionally, nutritionally, it's it's definitely changed. It's changed. Yeah. So it's it's affecting your um, the antioxidants in mm. your body that helps you fight off cellular destruction. Wow. Absolutely. Well, Jeremiah, thank you so much for being on the show. <laughs> My pleasure. Absolutely. Really All fun. right, fighting off cellular destruction. <laughs> Go to your farmer's market, everybody. <laughs> Okay, little humans, I hope you enjoyed today's interview with Jeremiah as much as I did. And here's today's toast poem. It's a shorty, but I hope you like it. Here we go. I had a dream. I lived in San Francisco. You came to visit me, and I didn't want you to leave. Right, little humans, big thanks to Jeremiah Ridnar for coming on the show. I hope you enjoyed that interview, today's toast poem. As usual, today's episode is brought to you by me, Norma Jean. You can hear all my music that we use on the podcast. I've got two albums. See all my original Daily Doodle cartoons and some shirts that go with them, all my shenanigans at NJ Loves. That's NJ, like Norma Jean, loves.com. We've also teamed up with Bali Spirit Festival, as mentioned. So if you're hearing a lot of the content, you're thinking about coming to Bali, come for Bali Spirit Festival. It's April 2nd through 8th, 2018, and use the code STAYWILD for $40 off the five-day spirit pass, or the code STAYWILDABUNDANCE for $50 off the whole enchilada abundance pass. If you do like the show, please subscribe, write us a review. It really helps other people find the show. You can subscribe in iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts from. Until next time, little humans, stay wild.